bring it. On your mark, ready, set, let's go. Got a PhD, better listen to me. If you don't watch out, it's RIP. Careful with your food, don't get sick, wait and hate that's it. Take a look at the stats from the CDC. There's some pretty smart cats each year in the state. Lots of folks be illin'. CDC says about 76 million. Burgers, chicken, part of our nutrition. If you don't know what you're doing, you might need a mortician. Little tiny bugs, the eye can't see. Some are not one called B. Cola, they're all bacteria. Like hysteria, you'll feel inferior. Those bugs are doing number on your interior. Careful with your food, don't get sick with it. Welcome, my friends, welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 12th day of April, 2009. I'd like to welcome all of my listeners to this edition of the Corbett Report podcast and ask my listeners to check into the websites CorbettReport.com and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com where you can find out more information about this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos that the Corbett Report has created in the past. There you'll also be able to find RSS feeds, which you can use to subscribe to this podcast, as well as our article, interview, and video feeds, so you can stay up to date with all of our latest efforts. And now, without further ado, let's get into today's real news. Today's first real news comes from Glenn Greenwald's Unclaimed Territory blog on Salon.com, April 6, 2009. New and Worse Secrecy and Immunity Claims from the Obama DOJ When Congress immunized telecoms last August for their illegal participation in Bush's warrantless eavesdropping program, Senate Democratic Apologists for Telecom Immunity repeatedly justified that action by pointing out that Bush officials who broke the law were not immunized, only the telecoms. Taking them at their word, EFF, which was the lead counsel in the lawsuits against the telecoms, thereafter filed suit in October 2008 against the Bush administration and various Bush officials for illegally spying on the communications of Americans. They were seeking to make good on the promise made by congressional Democrats. Namely, that even though lawsuits against telecoms for illegal spying will not be allowed any longer, government officials who broke the law can still be held accountable. But late Friday afternoon, the Obama DOJ filed the government's first response to EFF's lawsuits, the first of its kind to seek damages against government officials under FISA, the Wiretap Act, and other statutes, arising out of Bush's NSA program. But the Obama DOJ demanded dismissal of the entire lawsuit based on, one, its Bush-mimicking claim that the state secrets privilege bars any lawsuits against the Bush administration for illegal spying, and two, a brand new sovereign immunity claim of breathtaking scope never before advanced even by the Bush administration 
that the Patriot Act bars any lawsuits of any kind for illegal government surveillance unless there is willful disclosure of the illegally intercepted communications. In other words, beyond even the outrageously broad state secrets privilege invented by the Bush administration and now embraced fully by the Obama administration, the Obama DOJ has now invented a brand new claim of government immunity, one which literally asserts that the U.S. government is free to intercept all of your communications, calls, emails, and the like, and even if what they're doing is blatantly illegal and they know it's illegal, you are barred from suing them unless they willfully disclose to the public what they have learned. Every defining attribute of Bush's radical secrecy powers, every one is found here and in exactly the same tone and with the exact same mindset. Thus, how the U.S. government eavesdrops on its citizens is too secret to allow a court to determine its legality. We must just blindly accept the claims from the president's DNI that we will all be endangered if we allow courts to determine the legality of the president's actions. Even confirming or denying already publicly known facts, such as the involvement of the telecoms and the massive data mining programs, would be too damaging for, to national security. Why? Because the DNI says so. It is not merely specific documents, but entire lawsuits that must be dismissed in advance as soon as the privilege is asserted because its very subject matter would inherently risk or require the disclosure of state secrets. As EFF's Bankston put it, President Obama promised the American people a new era of transparency, accountability, and respect for civil liberties. But with the Obama Justice Department continuing the Bush administration's cover-up of the National Security Agency's dragnet surveillance of millions of Americans, and insisting that the much-publicized warrantless wiretapping program is still a secret that cannot be reviewed by the courts, it feels like deja vu all over again. This is the Obama DOJ's work, and only its work, and it is equal to, and in some senses surpasses, the radical secrecy and immunity claims of the Bush administration. Our second real news story this week comes from The Inquisitor, April 6, 2009. Newspapers last stand. AP declares war on fair use. Blogs. The Associated Press, AP, has declared war on news aggregators and bloggers in what could be the last stand for the newspaper industry. In a speech at the AP General Meeting, AP Chairman Dean Singleton told the audience that we can no longer stand by and watch others walk off with our work under misguided legal theories. We are mad as hell, and we are not going to take it anymore. Singleton said that AP and its member newspapers must be paid fully and fairly where other sites quote AP content including portals. The misguided legal theories Singleton is referring to is fair use, an enshrined doctrine under U.S. copyright law. We also already know what AP defines as misappropriation. Anything more than five words, which is the level they set when they went after blogs in June 2008. Most of the attention is focused on Google News and similar sites. AP and newspapers are running the line that news aggregators steal from them. But what should be more concerning 
is how they'll come after blogs as well. Dean Singleton was interviewed by Paid Content here. What about us? We get along fairly well with AP when it comes to using the new service in our own reports. We link to stories on member or client sites, usually with attribution and without wholesale quoting. We ask directly for artwork when there's something we'd like to use in a news story, as was the case with the photo accompanying this post. So I was a little taken aback when I asked Singleton what would happen to sites like ours. I'll leave that to the rules of engagement that we'll be developing in coming weeks. Not, we're not after sites like yours, or we're looking at flagrant violators, and no sign at all that the AP will be reaching out beyond its members for input. Time for another AP content boycott, and we'd love to see Google strip AP content out of Google News as well. Despite what Singleton claims, there's actually a world of news outside of the AP and its members, but there's only one way to prove it. Our final real news story today comes from the raw story, April 4th, 2009. Scientists find active superthermite in WTC dust. A team of nine scientists have released a startling new report on the events of 9-11 using data from dust gathered in the days and weeks after the towers came down. They discovered that scattered throughout the dust samples were red and gray chips of active thermitic material or an unreacted pyrotechnic explosive. Thermite is used in steel welding, fireworks shows, and hand grenades. It is the combination of a metal powder and a metal oxide which produce a reaction known for extremely high temperatures focused in a very small area for a short period of time. The active thermitic material discovered in the World Trade Center dust was a combination of elemental aluminum and iron oxide and is a form of thermite known as nanostructured superthermite. These observations reminded us of nanothermite fabricated at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory and elsewhere. Available papers describe the material as an intimate mixture of UFG, ultrafine grain, aluminum, and iron oxide in nanothermite composites to form pyrotechnics or explosives. Commercially available thermite behaves as an incendiary when ignited, but when the ingredients are ultrafine grain and are intimately mixed, this nanothermite reacts very rapidly, even explosively, and is sometimes referred to as superthermite the report explains. The full article can be found in the Open Chemical Physics Journal. It remains to be seen if this study will encourage further investigation into the events of 9-11, or if anyone will come forth with a legitimate reason as to why nanostructured superthermite can be found in dust produced by the collapse of the World Trade Centers. Now you deal with food, the ultimate control mechanism. We have a bill, bill in the House and also in the Senate that is, is promoting the inability of people to uh, raise gardens on their own. Uh, and it's done through restrictions and, of course, as everything else, it's for your own good. You see, if you use organic fertilizer, which is in fact manure, uh, then that's offensive to Monsanto. Now, Monsanto uh, and uh, 
the uh, the large uh, producers like Tyson uh, are all behind this bill, which requires small producers and your regular farmers virtually to report every morsel that they've got. Welcome, my friends, to episode 83 of the Corbett Report, Food World Order. You've just been listening to Steve Schenk of eFoodsDirect.com, who joined Alex Jones on The Alex Jones Show last month to talk about H.R. 875 and other food supply and food control issues that are going to, in the very near future, affect the way we acquire and handle our food in a very direct sense. Of course, as always, I would urge listeners to check out the full context of that clip by following the link from the documentation section of today's episode, which can be obtained from the website CorbettReport.com. Now, I'm sure that many of my listeners will be aware that much has been written about H.R. 875 in recent weeks, including much dissenting opinion that this will, in fact, not affect small farmers or farmers' markets in any way. But for an interesting view from the other side, I would like to direct my listeners to an article from Natural Solutions Foundation that can be found on blacklistednews.com, entitled HR 875-S425, Farm-to-Fork Food Fascism Comes to America. This is written by Dr. Rima LeBeau, who listeners will remember from our previous podcast episode on Codex Alimentarius who talks about H.R. 875 in this context as a stealth implementation of Codex Alimentarius, the world-mandated plan for standardizing food safety. And for an understanding of how food safety and food regulation can be used as the thin edge of the wedge to, in fact, control food and the food supply. A great source of that also comes from the Natural Solutions Foundation at globalhealthfreedom.org, from something entitled White Paper, Mandating No Harmonization with Codex, Food Safety, and Food Regulation. From the Farm to Fork Food Fascism article, I read the following, quote, Food is becoming a battleground like no other. Freedom, survival, fascistic takeover of a once-free people, more or less at least. Corporate triumph over independent producers. It's all happening around food, and the mechanism is simple. A set of bills ostensibly devoted to food safety and food security. In essence, these bills are a sneak attack implementation of Codex Alimentarius. The Natural Solutions Foundation has been warning that organic farming and home growing, clean food and food freedom were under heavy attack. Here is the mother of all food fascism assaults and we still have time to defeat it. Congress often comes up with bad ideas. This is not just a bad idea, it is a catastrophically bad idea for health and freedom. In fact, it is nothing short of food tyranny, and will kill not only organic farming, but lots of people as well, along with the entire private farming sector. Your own gardens are at risk as well. End quote. Now, as I say, that interpretation of H.R. 875 has come under scrutiny as of late, and some researchers are questioning that interpretation of the law. But as always, I would suggest that listeners do the research for themselves and actually read the law in question and look at some of the alternative explanations. 
But regardless of what one thinks in relation to this particular bill, H.R. 875, or some of the other bills that are coming down the pipeline, including H.R. 759, and links to H.R. 875 and H.R. 759 from govtrack.us will also be available in the documentation section of today's episode. As I say, regardless of what one thinks about these individual laws, there is no doubt that there are a number of different attack vectors through which government regulation is being used to clamp down on independent producers. And one indication of that came from a recent episode of this podcast, where we talked about some of the government raids on, for example, Ohio Organic Co-ops. And again, there will be the link from Intel Daily, once again, in this week's documentation section. Another example comes from TulsaWorld.com, March 3rd, 2009. Henderson urges caution on community gardens. Quote, Tall grass might not be the only kind of weed that could sprout in community gardens as an unintended consequence, City Councilor Jack Henderson said Tuesday. The council needs to consider all of the doors it might open by allowing community gardens, Henderson said during a council committee meeting. A proposed zoning amendment that would allow the gardens by right doesn't address what can be grown, he said. How do we know what people are going to be growing? Vegetables? Maybe. Or maybe something else, he said. Is there going to be someone that inspects what is growing? After the meeting, Henderson confirmed that he was alluding to marijuana. But, he said, his main concern is protecting neighborhoods. End quote. In this particular case in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we have city councilors attempting to stop communities from actually growing community gardens because, oh no, they might actually grow marijuana on their gardens. And as an interesting editorial from Tulsa World makes very clear through satire, well, if the city council of Tulsa is so concerned about such a possibility, why don't they just make growing marijuana illegal? Oh wait, it already is. So... This, again, is just one isolated story in what amounts to a web of thousands of data points, which overall start to create a narrative arc, which we can start to read only if we understand this as part of a larger ongoing agenda. Sometimes we are defeated by an enemy simply for our lack of ability to name the enemy. If we don't understand that there is an enemy and that we are being attacked... How can we possibly fight against that enemy? This, of course, is one of the raison d'etre of the Corbett Report, is simply to name the enemy and understand that we are under attack. So how, then, to take this web of interrelated health freedom and food fascism issues and name the enemy in this case and try to understand what is happening on a larger scale? For that, I'd like to turn to a guest that we had on episode 75 of the Corbett Report, and which I once again had the opportunity to interview this week. Of course, the interview is available from the Interviews tab of CorbettReport.com, and I would suggest that my listeners go and find that and listen to this wide-ranging conversation about many of the topics that will be covered in today's episode. But right now, let's turn to a clip from my recent interview with James Evan Pilato, the podcaster and host and researcher and webmaster behind MediaMonarchy.com, an excellent source of news and information, and now also the webmaster of a new domain, FoodWorldOrder.com. 
In this recent conversation, I started by asking James Evan Pilato where the name Food World Order came from and what exactly does it mean? Well, it's funny, you know, like a lot of things that sort of they, they happen as a spur of the moment. A lot of things, if you try and plan out, they'll never come to fruition. But Food World Order, the, the name and the phrase and the idea for the site were literally coined live while I was doing a recent episode of Media Monarchy on the Portland Radio Authority and Revere Radio Network. As I was covering food and enviro health stories and was sort of, you know, speaking off the cuff and pontificating, and I was trying to grasp for the words to describe what was going on. And again, whether we were talking about the New World Order or talking about what we've recently seen, the new financial world order, in grasping for what we're seeing and I think what we're going to see more of, Food World Order hit me. And when I got home, just a couple hours later, I checked online to see and foodworldorder.com was available and for 9.99 I rolled the dice and bought the .com site and immediately married it to the free blogger account which is the way that I do mediamonarchy.com it sort of keeps it cheap for me so buy the .com and just have it point to the blogger site and immediately started posting and I've got almost probably a dozen postings and it's only been a few weeks for food world order. And again, it was something where we're literally swimming in news. There's a barrage of it and it's impossible to try and cover it all. Try, you know, as I might to get everything onto mediamonarchy.com. There are times, and I believe we've talked about this before, where you could almost have separate sites for each few angles of these things that we're covering. So a site that could just be devoted to 9-11-7-7 terror research or a site just devoted to the money crash or a site just devoted to the environment and the health and the food. So that's what I want to try and do with Food World Order. The other thing I would like to do, and, and again, it's great to sort of be able to launch a new site and again, Food World Order is still for what I think in its kind of embryonic state. But it's nice to launch something and already have a little bit of a built-in audience that I have from Media Monarchy. So at least it was nice to get some you know, pretty, pretty quick feedback, which was fantastic. One of the things I would ultimately like to do is open Food World Order up to a little bit more of a collaborative effort. Because again, we're always trying to make connections. We do sometimes feel like we're, you know by ourselves doing websites and radio shows that we need to connect with people more. So the idea would be to try and open up Food World Order. So I may find some extra editors and some extra help for the site, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. Well, let's start to get into some specifics. I know your site is relatively new, but let's talk about some of the stories that you're, you're tracking at the moment or some of the trends that you see developing already. Well, again, just as you, you sort of start a new site and think, okay, I'm going to focus on this thing. It's like, well, Food World Order actually probably encompasses the environment, the health, the water, our animals, our pets, the drugs that they try and force feed us. And, you know, hell, we're figuring out that, you know, well, if you just don't want to take the drugs, we'll get it to you through the water. So we've recently seen, of course, more and more studies. Again, it just kind of 
reproves it over and over again. We, of course, last year had, I believe, the Associated Press do, you know, their own kind of investigational reports and found in multiple cities, you know, horrible, you know, <laughs> far above what the EPA save criticism about them for perhaps a different discussion, but even what they say would probably be okay in the water. It's far, far worse than that. So whether we see that it's, you know, rocket fuel in the water, we've now recently seen, and again from the Associated Press, it's rocket fuel chemical found in baby formula. And that is definitely one area where I have seen a lot of changes is basically the baby section on aisle nine i've seen a lot of the bottles switch out and a lot of the things stop moving because fortunately again the public outcry when you see parents starting to go the shots i've heard a lot about the shots and then they gave their kid the shots and lost them so when we see a lot of parents even faking religious convictions to avoid vaccinating their kids because they're they're scared of it fortunately there was an outcry of course and you covered it on the bisphenol a the bpa that was found the chemical that was found in the bottles and again a lot of the times when you're when you try and explain these things to people a lot of the times they want the big question it's like but why would they do this the average person is probably a good person. And I think that's why a lot of times people can't wrap their brains around the horrible, macabre things that are done. And again, is it a guy in a room going, I'm going to put chemicals in a bottle, ha, 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 and kill the children? Maybe it is. Maybe there really are probably Mr. Burns-type characters tinting their fingers at the evil that they do. But it trickles down and... It's compartmentalized and somebody works in a factory and they just know that we make these bottles these certain way or we know that we process this food in a certain way and they're not in on it, but they are involved. So to backtrack as we were talking about the outcry, fortunately we've seen a lot more outcry lately. So whether it's about vaccinations or whether it's about the chemicals in the baby food or whether it's about the engineered economic collapse more and more people i think are discovering things and again that's kind of the whole question we ask ourselves as we're doing these things hey people are waking up people are really starting to talk about this stuff but is it happening fast enough and we're not really going to know the answer to that question james evan Pilato of mediamonarchy.com and now foodworldorder.com and yes you did hear that correctly rocket fuel in baby formula and no, you can't make this up. Rocket fuel found in infant formula from motherjones.com, Thursday, April 2nd, 2009. Quote, A scary new under-the-radar CDC study has found that 15 infant formulas sold in the U.S. are contaminated with the rocket fuel additive perchlorate, which is even worse than it sounds because so is the tap water parents mix formula with. From the Environmental Working Group, researchers from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have reported that 15 brands of powdered infant formula are contaminated with perchlorate, a rocket fuel component detected in drinking water in 28 states and territories. 
the two most contaminated brands made from cow's milk accounted for 87% of the U.S. powdered formula market in 2000, the scientists said. The CDC scientists did not identify the formula brands they tested. The little-noticed CDC findings, published in the March 2009 edition of the Journal of Exposure Science and Environmental Epidemiology, raise new concerns about perchlorate pollution, a legacy of Cold War rocket and missile tests. Studies have established that the chemical is a potent thyroid toxin that may interfere with fetal and infant brain development. End quote. Yes, indeed, environmental pollution is a very real problem, and no, it doesn't have anything to do with the man-made CO2 that's being pumped out into the atmosphere as much as it does all of the other chemicals which are being screened from our scrutiny because of this anthropogenic climate change nonsense. Moving right along to some of the other food safety issues that have been popping up all over the place as of late, we turn to a story from naturalnews.com from April 5th, 2009. Bottled water found contaminated with medications, fertilizer, disinfection chemicals. Quote, Bottled water across the country contains a wide variety of toxic substances, according to laboratory tests conducted by the Environmental Working Group, EWG. Our tests strongly indicate that the purity of bottled water cannot be trusted, the study authors write. Given the industry's refusal to make available data to support their claims of superiority, consumer confidence in the purity of bottled water is simply not justified. Researchers conducted comprehensive tests at the renowned University of Iowa Hygienic Laboratory on 10 leading bottled water brands purchased from retailers in nine states and the District of Columbia. A total of 38 toxic pollutants were detected altogether, with each brand containing an average of eight chemicals detected, including fluoride, byproducts of chlorine-based disinfection, caffeine, pharmaceutical drugs, fertilizer residue, plasticizers, solvents, fuel propellants, arsenic, other minerals, and heavy metals, and radioactive isotopes. Four brands also contained bacteria. More than a third of the chemicals detected are not regulated by the bottled water industry. Voluntary industry standards regulate the following two-thirds, but water purchased in five states and in D.C. contained levels of some carcinogens, in excess of even the industry's standards. In other words, this bottled water was chemically indistinguishable from tap water, the authors write. But with promotional campaigns saturated with images of mountain springs and prices 1,900 times the price of tap water, consumers are clearly led to believe that they are buying a product that has been purified to a level beyond the water that comes out of the garden hose. End quote. Of course, I could point to all of the other hundreds of other food safety, food contamination stories that have been popping up as of late, but I'm sure they're very familiar to a lot of listeners. And as James Evan Pilato pointed out in that full interview, which again I would recommend you go and listen to in its entirety from CorbettReport.com, these types of food safety issues often come from the big corporate giants which dominate so much of our food industry and the mechanized big agra to big supermarket to our home food chain which has developed over the last 50 years 
as I say, the problems come from the big agri-giants and from the big food companies. But as James Evan Bellotto points out, it's usually the small people who have to pay the price. And in the case of food safety, that price can be your life. Now, this is not a trivial issue, because even if you are not affected by the food safety problems themselves, chances are that you will at least be affected by the regulations that are brought in as a result of these problems and as a solution to these problems. And as we know, of course, problem-reaction-solution is always used to further the consolidation of power and control in the hands of the people who have themselves caused the problem. The food safety issue is no different. Think of it this way. We have been led to believe that there is an international crisis which is always on the verge of breaking out in the cattle industry. The foot and mouth outbreak in Britain in 2001, for example, in which we saw flaming pyres of dead cattle being burnt throughout England as a result of the foot and mouth outbreak in that country. But, of course, what was the actual cause of that foot-and-mouth outbreak? Well, a hint comes from the archives of BreakingNews.ie from Sunday, April 8th of 2001. Stolen foot-and-mouth virus released deliberately. Quote, The foot-and-mouth outbreak could have been started deliberately by someone who stole a test tube of the virus from a laboratory in Britain. The Sunday Express says a container of foot-and-mouth virus went missing from a secret government lab at Portendown in Wiltshire two months before the crisis began. The disappearance was discovered during a routine audit of the sensitive unit, which also houses smallpox, TB, anthrax, and Ebola. The newspaper says there are rumors the missing test tube could have been taken by an animal rights activist. The paper quotes a senior military source close to Portland Down as saying, a vial appears to have gone missing from one of the labs following a routine audit last year. Ministry officials were informed immediately, and an investigation was launched initially by Special Branch and then by MI5, who are interested in the activities of animal rights protesters. It says questions will be tabled in Parliament about the Portland Down link this week. A Department of Health spokesman wouldn't comment, but the paper said an Agriculture Ministry spokesman said the matter was being investigated. End quote. Funny, I never really heard about the end results of that investigation or any follow-up of it in the controlled corporate media. I can't imagine why. Of course, we had a very similar story in 2007. This one from the Mail Online at dailymail.co.uk. August 2007, foot and mouth came from American Research Center, three miles from farm outbreak. Quote, an American pharmaceutical company appeared to be responsible for the foot and mouth outbreak in Britain. Mariel, which makes foot and mouth vaccines and has a laboratory three miles from the Surrey farm hit by the disease, dramatically agreed to stop production immediately. The breakthrough came after DEFRA experts established that the strain of foot-and-mouth disease found in cattle at the infected farm at Wanborough is similar to the virus isolated in the 1967 outbreak in Britain. It is most similar to strains used in vaccine production, including at the Purbright site shared by Muriel and the Institute of Animal Health, said a DEFRA statement, adding that this particular strain was used in a batch of vaccine made by Muriel 
last month, end quote. So again, we have extremely suspicious disease outbreaks, which directly tie back to government facilities and to vaccine manufacturers, which lead to international scares over the food safety in the cattle industry, which lead to new regulations taking place across the globe that will see animals electronically ID'd, tagged from birth to death in government-controlled databases, and put under an Orwellian level of government bureaucracy, which had hitherto never been necessary. But now suddenly we realize it's necessary to keep animals safe from these terrible disease outbreaks. Of course, this has nothing to do with food safety and everything to do with putting Orwellian layers of bureaucracy and control at the federal government level over everything to do with food production, completely eliminating small farmers from being able to compete with the big agri-giants. Now, this has manifested in the last few years in something which in the United States is known as the National Animal Identification System, or NAIS, and in other countries under different names. But all of them have the same idea and the same purpose. So, to find out more information about the NAIS and this Orwellian layer of bureaucratic control over the cattle industry, let's turn to some of the people who are fighting for the U.S. cattle producer, and in this case, we'll turn to RCAF USA. RCAF USA is the Ranchers Cattlemen Action Legal Fund, United Stock Growers of America, and represents thousands of U.S. cattle producers on domestic and international trade and marketing issues. It's a non-profit organization that operates in 47 states and consists primarily of cow-calf operators, cattle backgrounders, and feedlot owners. I recently had the chance to talk to the CEO of RCAF USA, Bill Bullard, about NAIS and about RCAF USA's recently released eight-point alternative to the National Animal Identification System in the U.S. The interview is now, of course, available for download from CorbettReport.com, and once again, I would suggest my listeners download that interview to listen to it in its entirety. But right now, let's listen to an excerpt from that conversation in which I talk to Mr. Bullard about NAIS, what it is, and why RCAF USA and independent U.S. cattle producers are opposed to it. Well, the NAIS stands for the National Animal Identification System, or NACE, and this is a proposal uh, by the U.S. Department of Agriculture to require every livestock owner to first register their real property on a national federal database and then to begin registering and tracking the movements of every animal that they own. So a cattle producer, for example, would need to register in a national database and then obtain a federal identification number to affix to their, each of their livestock, and then every time that livestock is moved from one location to another, the producer would be required to report to the federal government about that livestock movement. So this is an overly intrusive government program 
that we believe infringes upon the rights and privileges of independent cattle producers across the United States. The program is touted as a means of improving our ability to contain and control disease outbreaks in the U.S. However, the centerpiece of the NACE is an international ear tag called an 840 ear tag that would be required to be applied to every animal. And that international ear tag has nothing to do whatsoever with disease traceback. In fact, that ear tag supplants what has been a time-proven and historically successful disease control program here in the United States that used to rely on a metal ear tag clip that was affixed to the animal, and that clip had a number that designated the specific state the animal came from and had a code designating the actual local veterinarian that applied the tag when the animal was very young. So under the existing program, if a disease outbreak occurs, any official could look at that metal tag and know exactly which of the 50 states that animal came from, make a phone call to that state, and the state veterinarian could immediately initiate quarantine or control measures necessary to prevent the spread of the disease. But this NACE replaces all of that with an international ear tag that gives no information, no helpful information, unless one first has access to a computer to access the database that's going to contain well over 100 million animals and hope that there's no error in the data just to determine what state the animal came from. This NACE is actually going to reduce our ability to contain and control diseases in the United States. And if the USDA were serious about improving our disease traceback capabilities, they would follow our eight-point plan, which number one says you first need to prevent the introduction of foreign animal diseases into the United States. And what USDA is doing right now contradicts that. In fact, they are knowingly allowing cattle from Canada that are of high risk for BSE or mad cow disease into the United States. Their own risk study uh, predicts that we will introduce 19 infected animals as a result of the relaxed policy with respect to Canada's BSE problem. We also know that we are knowingly introducing bovine tuberculosis into the U.S. cattle herd every year because we continually allow Mexican cattle to come into the United States even though they are known uh, to be infected with the tuberculosis in Mexico. So it is contradictory for USDA to say we need this new measure to control diseases when in fact USDA has relaxed restrictions that are now allowing the reintroduction of diseases on a daily basis in the United States. So the first thing we need to do is protect against the introduction of disease a preventive measure by maintaining strict border controls um, and then we need to improve upon the pre-existing system that have really gained the envy of the world in, with our ability to effectively control and eradicate diseases uh, within the U.S. cattle herd, and, and we're the largest beef producer in the world. And we do have a, an exemplary system uh, that we should not be tinkering with as USDA is proposing under this NACE. Well, certainly the the points that you raise in your eight point alternative sound like just plain common sense and and good ideas in this uh, to implement in this system, rather than NACE, which sounds like an, a bizarre 
Orwellian layer of government bureaucracy. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and go through some of the other specific points that you have in that plan? Well, what we recognize is that because the U.S. has been so successful in eradicating and controlling diseases, for example, we have significantly reduced the bovine tuberculosis in our herd despite the continued reintroduction from Mexico, and now the, the hot spots for this disease are really in the deer populations in the states, northeastern states like Michigan. Uh, in terms of brucellosis, we've all but eradicated brucellosis within our borders, and the only known reservoir for that disease is in the wildlife population in the greater Yellowstone area, in the, in the elk and the bison uh, that reside there. And so we have been so successful in eradicating diseases that many states have abandoned the disease surveillance programs because they were free of the disease. As a result, we have fewer livestock now participating in these pre-existing successful programs. The second point in our proposal is that we rebuild those pre-existing systems. We adopt the brucellosis-type disease control method and begin to identify the animals that remain in our breeding herd with the same metal ear clip that allowed trace back back to the state where the animal was born, as well as the local veterinarian that applied the ear tag. And we use that as the centerpiece of our disease improvement program in the United States. So the second step is to adopt the systems that are working well. The next step is to ensure that a federal database that would consist of citizens, private and property, not be held by the federal government, but rather be held by the states that actually have jurisdiction over the citizens. We want the states and our tribal governments to maintain the database necessary to conduct disease traceback. And then, in recognition of the fact that USDA does not have good lines of communications between all of the 50 state animal health officials, we we recommend that USDA improve its communications ability among and between all 50 states and the tribal governments that would hold the databases containing the animals of interest in any disease traceback effort. Also, because we recognize this as being a national security issue, the ability to contain and prevent the spread of diseases, we think the federal government should be paying for the costs of this additional identification as well as surveillance for diseases as they have in the past. And recognizing that the diseases that we now have within the United States that continue to be a problem are indigenous within some of our wildlife populations, we believe the government should be focusing resources in controlling and containing the diseases within these respective wildlife populations that have been identified as being diseased. So that's kind of a summary of what we're recommending to USDA and to Congress. Bill Bullard of RCAF USA. Now, I would suggest that my listeners go to the documentation list for today's episode, where they can find not only a link to RCAF USA's homepage, but of course also a link to their eight-point alternative plan to NAIS, which I highly suggest that listeners who are interested take a look at, and those who are in a position to do so, forward to their elected representatives to try to establish the eight-point alternative as a viable legislative alternative to the National Animal Identification System. Now, of course, as Mr. Bullard pointed out there, 
This system goes back to an international set of protocols developed by, surprise, surprise, the World Trade Organization. And the WTO, of course, is the body in charge of regulating Codex Alimentarius. It all goes back to the international regulatory framework that is being set up to function as the de facto international government, i.e. a world government in which the democratic right of the people is not acknowledged, the people have no say and no voice, and the rules are set by lobbyists and corporate chieftains. Once again, the world government that is being set up, the new world order that is being thrust into our face in the wake of the G20, is a fascist world government. And the infrastructure and framework for that world government is being slotted into place now. And it's only through resisting the programs that are being set up through this international regulatory framework and the ability to identify these programs as being part of a larger agenda that we will ever have any hope of really stopping what is actually happening right now. Once again, for an idea of how this spreads out to other countries, I'll post a link to a YouTube video in which an Australian cattle producer talks about the NAIS equivalent that's being instituted in Australia. Again, all of these regulations coming in in multiple countries around the world simultaneously under different names but having the same ends and not surprisingly all going back to the international regulatory fr framework that's being slotted into place by organizations like the WTO. So obviously the food safety and food regulation aspect of the food world order is one very important piece of that food world order puzzle. But there are many, many, many others. Of course, too many to possibly go into in one podcast episode, but let's try to take on at least one other significant factor in this. Of course, the regulatory framework for controlling the farming industry of not only individual countries, but indeed the world as a whole is taking place. And that's an incredibly par important part of what's going on. But another important part, of course, is the food itself. The actual genetic structure of the food is being played with by big biotech companies like, of course, Monsanto. Now, this is a key issue that we've addressed again and again in previous episodes of the Corbett Report podcast, and I would like to take a moment at this juncture to highly encourage all of my listeners to go back to listen or re-listen to episode 25 of the Corbett Report, Shut Up and Eat Your GMOs, and episode 41, Food is a Weapon, both of which deal in some length with these GMO issues and why GMO crops and GMO animals represent such a grave threat and a danger to the environmental stability of the planet itself. Now, one tiny fraction of a sliver of an idea of the monumental scope of what we are doing when we genetically modify crops and then eat them without adequate testing comes from a story that broke last week on Saturday, April 4th, 2009, under the headline, South African GMO Crop Failure Highlights Dangers of Food Supply Domination. This story comes via naturalnews.com, and I quote, 
Farmers in South Africa have suffered millions of dollars in lost income due to the failure of their genetically modified corn to produce kernels. The three varieties of plants look lush and healthy from the outside, but when the husks were pulled back, there are no kernels. Monsanto's GMO corn was planted on 82,000 hectares of farmland, an amount that equals over 202,000 acres. The losses spread over three South African provinces, and 280 of the 1,000 farmers who planted the corn have reported the lack of kernel development. Monsanto has blamed the failure on under-fertilization processes in the laboratory and attempted to make light of the situation by claiming that only 25% of the Monsanto-seeded farms are involved in the loss. But Marion Mayette, environmental activist and director of the Africa Center for Biosecurity in Johannesburg, is not buying it. According to her information, some farms have suffered up to an 80% crop failure. She has demanded an urgent government investigation and an immediate ban on all GMO food. She points out that it is biotechnology that is the failure, and a careless mistake would not affect three different varieties of corn at the same time. The varieties failing to produce kernels were designed with a built-in resistance to Monsanto's weed killers and were manipulated to increase yields. Mayette is justifiably upset. Corn is the primary staple food for South Africa's 48 million people. End quote. I think my astute listeners will have no problem discerning just how important a story like this is in getting to some of the real issues surrounding things like GMO crops. So it was with great interest that I turned to the African Center for Biosafety, directed by Miriam Mayette, for some answers regarding this recent crop failure in South Africa. I had the chance to talk to Ms. Mayette in Johannesburg earlier this week, not only about this specific problem, but also about GMO crops in general, and some of the myriad issues, problems, and unstudied potential disasters waiting to happen in the biotech industry. The African Center for Biosafety is a nonprofit organization based in Johannesburg, South Africa, which provides research and policy analysis on issues pertaining to genetic engineering, biosafety, and biopiracy in Africa, and it's a wealth and a treasure trove of information re regarding those particular topics. So I would highly suggest that listeners who are interested check it out at biosafetyafrica.net. But right now, let's take a listen to a short extract from my conversation with Miriam Mayette, the director of the African Center for Biosafety, in which we discuss the GM crop failure in South Africa and some of its more troubling ramifications. Well, let's let's open that box a little further. If if this problem, this recent crop failure, does represent a problem with the the GM technology itself, what what does that tell us about the feasibility of the so-called gene revolution being touted by the biotech firms that that are literally selling the third world a dream that genetic engineering is going to increase crop production and eradicate hunger? You know, I think it's a tragedy because they're just looking for markets. And Africa is potentially a big market, particularly if they begin to industrialize, if they begin to use the green revolution as um, as the laying the foundation, because the green green revolution intends to 
establish a whole value chain at the grassroots level to get the seeds to the farmers, the pesticides and, and fertilizer, and to get the the the, um, the harvest um, to the market without a huge investment of infrastructure. So I think that they're selling Africa a pipe dream. They're selling Africa a a a technology that will give a few people very short-term benefits um, because we know it's not sustainable. We know that there will be pest resistance, that it, uh, there's uh, um, biosafety concerns around, as we see now, the crop failure, unintended effects. And um, really, um, I am amazed that our, our governments in Africa who have been very... Um, resistant to GM technology thus far are beginning to buy into the pipe dream. And I think it's because of the money being put on the table. For example, Gates Foundation has given $47 million for GM drought-tolerant maize research. And some of that money will also be used for marker-assisted selection. But I think that because our, con- our continent is really cash-strapped and very little public money is going into public uh, 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 agricultural research, um, I think that they will sell out the peasant farmers and food security in favor of this pipe dream. So from your own analysis, why do you think the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation have been so heavily invested in this dream? And, and what do they seek to gain from, from this green revolution? You see, I think it's a, it's a clash of two paradigms at play here. Because the Rockefeller Foundation, you must remember, was the father of the green revolution in Asia. And the way we're looking at it is that they very heavily lobbied the um, Gates Foundation, and they have successfully convinced the Gates Foundation that the Green Revolution was, in fact, a huge success in Asia, and that but for the Green Revolution in Asia, more people would have died or been, you know, relegated to starvation status, and that it was um, a huge success. So I think that they buy into the paradigm that Rural poverty alleviation is um, the, the, the way to address that is to get farmers to produce more food production, more production. Not, they're not looking at equity issues or looking at agroecological alternatives. They have bought into the paradigm that you address rural poverty by enabling farmers to produce more food because in that way they can then export food to the global market. And we know that with the global financial crisis, global trade has been very hard hit. And now is the time to look inward and look at food security measures and enable Africa to be much more self-food secure and self-reliant and not rely, rely on Exports and imports of food and the the the, the uh, you know the the um, uh, price fluctuations of the global market. 
Well, I think self-sufficiency and self-reliance is the key, and the Green Revolution is really hindering uh, African farmers from being able to build up that self-reliance and and is really funneling money to the uh, basically American-based biotech firms. So, so what then, moving forward, is, is the next step in South Africa and in Africa generally? And what would you like to see happen in this particular case with the Monsanto corn? Well, I think that we would like to see our government put, uh, to put brakes on any further approvals of GM applications. We would like to see a commission of inquiry uh, by just maybe two or three biosafety experts to look into the the, the problems not only of this crop failure but of um, GM uh, uh, agriculture in South Africa. We would like to see that study being extended to the small-scale farmers that Monsanto has been targeted, targeting in the Eastern Cape. Um, and then we would like to see a lot of support for agroecological alternatives. And we would like to see a shift in agriculture policies towards towards food sovereignty principles and imperatives and um, and a commitment to, to that effect by our governments. And I think that that's what we would put a lot of our energy in. And um, I think that more pesticides, inorganic fertilizers, are, and uh, GMC is definitely not the answer for, for Africa. Once again, Miriam Mayette and the African Center for Biosafety can be found at biosafetyafrica.net. Now, it will be no surprise to any of my long-term listeners that this spontaneously, once you begin to scratch the surface, will always lead back to the same big names, the same big family foundations that are behind so many aspects of the new world order, in this case, the food world order, being heavily manipulated by the Rockefellers and the Gates and these other seemingly philanthropic family-funded foundations, which are in fact so incredibly tied in to the corporate control grid that there's really no differentiation. Now, what Miriam Mayette was alluding to in that conversation was the Green Revolution which was founded and funded by the Rockefeller Foundation starting in the 1960s. And to get a better understanding of that issue, I'd like to turn back to an article that we looked at in episode 41 of the Corbett Report, Food is a Weapon, which at the time in episode 41, I recommended everyone get to everyone they know because it is such an extremely important article that touches on so many aspects of this food world order. And that's Doomsday Seed Vault in the Arctic, which can be found at globalresearch.ca by the excellent and informative researcher William Engdahl. Now, in episode 41, we were concentrating on a different aspect of this article. But right now, let's take a look at some information about the Rockefeller Foundation and the Green Revolution, which, of course, was supposed to save the third world from starvation by generously providing them the technologies, the farming and agricultural technologies to work themselves out of their squalid conditions. Yes, all very philanthropic, I'm sure. Well, let's take a look at some of that article and look at the way the Green Revolution has really played out. Again, this is from Doomsday Seed Vault in the Arctic, an extremely important article that I recommend everybody get from today's documentation list and send out to everybody that you know. Quote, 
the same Rockefeller Foundation created the so-called Green Revolution out of a trip to Mexico in 1946 by Nelson Rockefeller and former New Deal Secretary of Agriculture and founder of the Pioneer Hybrid Seed Company, Henry Wallace. The Green Revolution purported to solve the world hunger problem to a major degree in Mexico, India, and other select countries where Rockefeller worked. Rockefeller Foundation agronomist Norman Borlaug won a Nobel Peace Prize for his work, hardly something to boast about with the likes of Henry Kissinger sharing the same. In reality, as it years later emerged, the Green Revolution was a brilliant Rockefeller family scheme to develop a globalized agribusiness, which they could then monopolize just as they had done in the world oil industry beginning a half century before. As Henry Kissinger declared in the 1970s, if you control the oil, you control the country. If you control the food, you control the population. Agribusiness and the Rockefeller Green Revolution went hand in hand. They were part of a grand strategy which included Rockefeller Foundation financing of research for the development of genetic engineering of plants and animals a few years later. John H. Davis had been Assistant Agriculture Secretary under President Dwight Eisenhower in the early 1950s. He left Washington in 1955 and went to the Harvard Graduate School of Business, an unusual place for an agriculture expert in those days. He had a clear strategy. In 1956, Davis wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review in which he declared that the only way to solve the so-called farm problem once and for all and avoid cumbersome government programs is to progress from agriculture to agribusiness. He knew precisely what he had in mind, though few others had a clue back then. A revolution in agriculture production that would concentrate control of the food chain in corporate, multinational hands away from the traditional family farmer. A crucial aspect driving the interest of the Rockefeller Foundation and U.S. agribusiness companies was the fact that the Green Revolution was based on proliferation of new hybrid seeds in developing markets. One vital aspect of hybrid seeds was their lack of reproductive capacity. Hybrids had a built-in protection against multiplication. Unlike normal open-pollinated species whose seeds gave yields similar to its parents, the yield of the seed borne by hybrid plants was significantly lower than that of the first generation. That declining yield characteristic of hybrids meant farmers must normally buy seed every year in order to obtain high yields. Moreover, the lower yield of the second generation eliminated the trade in seed that was often done by seed producers without the breeder's authorization. It prevented the redistribution of the commercial crop seed by middlemen. If the large multinational seed companies were able to control the parental seed lines in-house, no competitor or farmer would be able to produce the hybrid. The global concentration of hybrid seed patents into a handful of giant seed companies, led by DuPont's Pioneer Hybrid and Monsanto's DeKalb, laid the ground for the later GMO seed revolution. In effect, the introduction of modern American agricultural technology, chemical fertilizers, and commercial hybrid seeds all made local farmers in developing countries, particularly the larger, more established ones, dependent on foreign, mostly U.S. agribusiness and petrochemical company inputs. 
it was a first step in what was to be a decades-long, carefully planned process. End quote. Once again, that is an extremely important article, which eventually ties in with the gene revolution, as it's called, regarding the genetically modified crops, which are now being adopted by so many third world countries in the vain hope that this is somehow going to eliminate hunger worldwide, when in fact the exact opposite is taking place. And, of course, that article also gets into the Doomsday Seed Vault, which the Rockefellers and the Gates and other philanthropic organizations have funded in the Arctic, which, of course, just happens to be a repository of all the actual non-genetically modified seeds. But I'm sure that's just some horticultural hobby that the elites have, and it's nothing that we should be troubling ourselves about, right? Indeed. Well, of course, the important point that I wanted to highlight in that particular section of William Engdahl's essential article is that this is indeed a part of a decades-long, carefully planned process, which brings entire nations, indeed the entire international system, under the control of privately owned big agra companies, which are accountable to no one but their owners. And of course, let's not lose sight of the Rockefellers or David Rockefeller, the current patriarch, I suppose, of that, shall we say, extremely interesting family, who wrote in his memoirs, quote, For more than a century, ideological extremists at either end of the political spectrum have seized upon well-publicized incidents, such as my encounter with Castro, to attack the Rockefeller family for the inordinate influence they claim we wield over American political and economic institutions. Some even believe we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States, characterizing my family and me as internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure. One world, if you will. If that's the charge, I stand guilty, and I am proud of it. End quote. No, this is not a random concatenation of events that just happens in a bumbling process to bring us into an ever-widening, ever-deepening, ever-thickening web of alliances and interconnections to make us interdependent on this international system. No, this is part of a well-planned, well-thought-out process. And what is at stake is nothing less than the right to decide what we put in our own bodies, and how we grow the food that we consume. The most fundamental aspects of human existence are being taken over and monopolized by giant multinational corporations. If that doesn't make you concerned, you aren't paying attention. Once again, I ask my listeners not to take my word for anything that I have mentioned in today's episode, or to take this as the final word on this issue, of course there are millions of data points to be investigated, and this is only the beginning of a very long trail down a very deep and dark country road that each of us has to walk in our own way by doing our own research. Of course, I've highlighted some articles and some researchers that I would recommend that people take a look at, but obviously it's up to you. Find the sources that you're comfortable with, the information that you find interesting, and get that information out to others. 
until we start piecing together the random bits of information that we're subjected to on a daily basis and understanding the larger picture that is developing, we will never understand what is taking shape or how to best oppose what is happening. We have to educate ourselves and others about the encroaching food world order. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, asking you to join me again next week for episode 84 of the Corbett Report podcast. April is the cruelest month. I hate to see the farmer is the last of a dying breed. Living And taking what he needs Don't see much for the future When a family can't survive I'd hate to say the farmer Was the last of his kind